Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris Ofalt, the executive editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. Uh, once again this year, so many of the best films and the most exciting filmmaking are in the documentary space, um, which is why I'm thrilled to announce that we've partnered with HBO to bring back Doc Toolkit starting today. And for the next nine Tuesdays, Sarah, Jim, and I will be interviewing the filmmakers behind our favorite documentaries of the year. What this also means is we're expanding to a two-episode-a-week format, documentaries on Tuesdays, script and narrative interviews on Fridays. And I can't think of a better way to kick off this series than with Margaret Brown, uh, a filmmaker who embodies so much of what we want to celebrate on Doc Toolkit. If you haven't seen it, her new film, Descendant, just hit Netflix this weekend, and it's incredible. Um, it's a film about the last known slave ship to arrive in the United States, but at its core, as the critic Katie Walsh aptly wrote, Descendant is a feat of cinematic nonfiction storytelling about the importance of storytelling itself. Um, Margaret did have a couple technical problems recording on her end, but she graciously uh, volunteered to re-record them. So don't worry, this conversation is going to be good. But, you know, the really good news is that Jim, Sarah, and I, over the last few weeks, have started, not with this conversation, but you're going to hear it in the coming weeks, we started to do in-person interviews again. We started to get back into the studio with filmmakers. Um, hopefully in the coming weeks um, you're going to notice some improved sound quality as well. Anyways, uh, without further ado, here is Associate Craft Editor Sarah Shackett with her conversation with Margaret Brown. I, I want to ask, you know, this isn't your first time making a, a film in, in the Mobile area and, and kind of how you think about Descendant building on order of myths and what were sort of the different fears and the different requirements of interacting with those two different communities? Well, I also would add The Great Invisible. It's like my third film okay. I've made in Mobile. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, that's not as um, related to the story, but it is like time spent in the community in like different communities in Mobile that weren't just um, that that are yeah white and black and, um, and Asian actually for The Great Invisible. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think like for the, for, for the Order of Myths, um, my family's in that film. So it was different. It was a different access point. My grandfather helped me with like gain access to the white um, carnival world. And, um, and sort of he was my spokesperson for that to like for people to like let me in. Um, and in the black community, it was just sort of gaining trust slowly, but we didn't have that much time to gain trust because it was the Mardi Gras season, which is short. <laughs> um, the great, uh, but like I did meet some of the people that I both collaborated with and were in descendant through that process 15 years ago. Um, and I was introduced to the community of Africatown through that film. So um, so that was like sort of my way in for, for many years. And Kern Jackson, who collaborated with me um, on The Order of Myths as well, was one of my main collaborators on this. And he'd been working in the Africatown community for 25 years. So that was really helpful. Like, um, I mean, he was my he was my intro to Joycelyn, who is one of the featured stars of the film and um and i and, sh and you know i think she trusted me because she trusted him so that was sort of the beginning of that like um that relationship but that also was just like you know we worked on the film for four and a half years it's like four and a half years of coffee with joycelyn actually actually like for me joycelyn like we would meet for coffee and she would just have water and i'd be like are you gonna drink coffee <laughs> like why why do we meet at a coffee shop but um but yeah she's um she has that's a whole other movie but she has lots of um like food things that are that are cool so yeah 
Amazing, yeah. And I've 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 heard you say elsewhere that this was a very collaborative project with uh you wouldn't necessarily have, you know, consulted as much with your subjects as you do here. I'm curious sort of what different choices you made uh, that you might not have made for a different um, subject matter? Well, um, it became clear when the mayor family um, didn't speak to me and other, like when I made the order of myths, um, a lot of white people did speak to me, um, mainly because my grandfather was um, a very big part in the white mystic society. And so they trusted me because of him. And, um, but then after the order of myths came out and, um, and they saw the connections I made, like, and sort of what the camera saw, really, like what the camera saw, how it was different than what people would say to the camera. I don't think a lot of the white people in Mobile were happy with what the camera saw. So, um, so a lot of people didn't talk to me the second time, um, a lot of white people. And, um, you know, I had to figure out, well, how do I deal with this sort of, um, not entire white silence, certainly, but like a lot of the white people I wanted to speak with who were the people who had the money in Africa town, people who worked in the industry, people who were connected over many years to the story of the Clotilda when they were silent. Those were important voices that I had in the order of myths, you know? Um, so how, you know, now suddenly I'm a white person making a movie that's not about like this American, I mean, it was about the American, it is about the American experience, but it's told from the voices primarily of Africatown. So how am I going to do that with integrity? Is it even possible to honor their story from my perspective? You know, um, so a few different things. Um, one is that I involve the community in a way that I never have before. I let them in to the creative process more than I have ever in a film. I never show scenes and talk about scenes to people or I hadn't until this, although it was a very rewarding thing. So I think now I feel like I'm going to be more porous in my filmmaking. I think it allows a lot more happenstance and like truth into it when you do that, which I, I've always been kind of a control freak. Um, you know, I've always been very curious, but like also like, oh, it's my vision, whatever. This one, um, it's still my vision, maybe even more so, but um, but I I you know, had to know that this is, this is their story and I am a white person and I really had to listen deeply and question all my biases to do this correctly. And I mean, there was a few close collaborators like Essie Chambers, who was one of my creative producers, along with Kyle Martin, who's my longtime producer. You know, Kyle and I decided to bring her on. She was a friend of mine that I met her at an art colony and she's a, a very accomplished writer. And um, I mean, she wears many hats. She's also worked in documentary before, but it sort of organically, she, she was sort of already producing. We were talking about it all the time. And then it just became sort of like, we should really bring her on as a producer. And, you know, Kyle was generous enough of spirit to, to do that, but it was also kind of obvious. <laughs> and then Kern Jackson, who worked on The Order of Miss with me, that was also, um, again, I've never had someone who was like a writer on the film also be in the film, but that was sort of what the film told you it was, you know, um, he was the person I was talking with behind the scenes, but then he's also the folklorist in the tradition of Zora Neale Hurston, who has all the tapes. We didn't even realize until super late in the process, like, I mean, it might be less than a year ago, he brought out those tapes and we were like, are you kidding? I knew they existed, but I didn't really know what they were. 
I remember when we pulled out those VHS tapes in that scene that's in the film at the beginning. And, and Kyle was like, do not play that. <laughs> like, what's, is that your only copy? Like, what is even happening? And luckily there was a backup and he was just rewinding stuff. And we were like, Kern, stop, <laughs> you know? But it was, you know, he had this, like, he had basically these field recordings that were just these, these, it, it was, you, you could see the community from the previous generation. He had the stuff, you know, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, those VHSs are incredible and also the experience of watching someone rewind a VHS and the danger therein. Yes. Um, I would love to talk uh, about Zora Neale Hurston because her her voice and also, you know, the great service that she did to preserve Kuja's voice um, are a very important through line throughout the film. And so I'm curious about when that folded into your process and like some of the creation of, of those scenes where, um, where Barracoon is read. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, um, when I, I read Barracoon, um, I also ordered her collected letters and um, Barracoon is like rooted. It's a, I mean, it's about Africa town and it's about Cujo and it's like through his own words, telling the story and also Zora writes it in her own voice as well so it's this double whammy of of um both her gifts as a writer and his words and his remembrances and his deep sadness of 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 leaving his home and coming here and um told in his own voice it's very it's a very impactful story and but then I started reading her letters as well and just got a sense of her as a woman and a and a writer and I felt like very deeply connected to her like I you know I, I there was just something about like you know a hundred years ago this woman wandering through the south I I could see it you know I, I really deeply felt her presence and I became obsessed with her and I don't know I just wanted to honor her in the film and I mean she was sort of forgotten and then rediscovered the same way Africatown was and I feel like there's this looping that happens, you know, with history and things, you know, when Kern says in the movie, the boat's just waiting to get raised up. It was there all the time. I, that that kind of, that stuff is the stuff that gives you chills in a good way, you know? It's awesome. Yeah. In the beginning days of this, we thought it was um, possibly a, a series and not a feature. And, um, and, and I was just like pretty obsessed with, with her and the way she, the way she maneuvered through the world in, Harlem and the world of the South and the world of Florida and the world of, world of Mobile and her letters reflected that her sort of um, her her nest the necessity of being a chameleon which I feel like is something that um, people who uh, record history and have to interact with a lot of different kinds of people you have to be that way so I really like I was reading her from like almost a hundred years ago and like feeling deeply identifying with that part of her you know that the chameleon part. And um, and also just her voice was so clear to me. It felt like she so came alive and I just got really obsessed with her. Clearly she's a, a brilliant writer and an anthropologist and, um, and and we discovered a filmmaker. I mean, her her shooting is stunning. I was gonna ask like, what do you love about her as a documentary filmmaker? The footage is crazy good. Like I was like, this woman has the best eye. I mean, I was just like, her close-ups, they're just like immaculate. And, and just where the camera is, just everything about it was astonishing when we when we saw it. I mean, she is so talented. 
it was, it, her footage is riveting and her footage of Cujo Lewis is riveting, you know? And I think also um, she left the South and came back and I left the South and came back. I mean, now I'm back in the South, like I live in Austin, but which is arguably Texas and there's, you know, South Texas, I don't know. But um, but I'm in Alabama all the time. Um, I spend a lot of time in, in LA and New York and I definitely deeply identified with her you know, she had some issues dealing with Cujo dipping back in and, and him thinking of her as like a Yankee in some way um, coming from another place. And and those are kind of trust things that people always navigate as insider outsiders. And she was an insider outsider just like I am, you know. And so I just think um, to, to get back to like creatively what that text did it was a way to really deeply connect the past to the present by having the descendants read it. It's not that many generations back. It's like astonishingly a short glimpse of time. Like um, Gary Lumbers, like he lived in Cujo's house, you know, um, you know, his his um, there's a famous picture of Cujo and two of his grandchildren. Like one of those two women was his mother, you know. Um, so it's like that is nuts when you think about it. Um, this is another iteration of the story being passed along, the looping that happens. It's it's chills. It's it's incredible. So yeah, I was just taken with the power of that connection. And it was also very much collaborative, those parts, in a way that I hadn't done on a film before. Um, I wanted to, them to know, because it's, it's one thing to like film verite. It, you, arguably that's manipulative, but you're also capturing reality, you know, and so they knew I was there. They knew the camera was there. I felt more comfortable with that. But with Zora and, and Barracoon, this is like their story, literally. And they needed to approve of it in the same, you know, as part of the team of the film, of the filmmakers, of, of the filmmaking. So um, that was really important to me. And I'd never done that before. I'd never showed footage before it was complete because there's a chance they're going to be like, this sucks. This is not how I want my story to be told and do it over. And like, you know, there's huge crews and steady cams involved. So and like those aren't things that normally a documentary has budget for. So I was like nervous. But I also knew because we had a billion conversations about it beforehand, like why I wanted to do it. What do they think of reading that part? Why I was doing it, like why I was placing a person in a place like those conversations happened beforehand. I just didn't show up that morning and was like, oh, we're doing this. You know, it was an ongoing dialogue and, com and conversation. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, would have been deeply weird if she's like, come with me down to the river. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, but I do. And these are people with strong opinions, like, you know, um, just like I have. Like it was, you know, I, and I, I, you know, of course, deeply respect their opinions and want to get it right. Of course. Um, and it is, as you say, like such a powerful way of, of getting, bringing the past into spaces where we wouldn't necessarily see it. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I also wanted to, to touch on, um, you know, the film does such a phenomenal job of giving us the right information at the right time, both about the story of the Clotilda and like our view of Africatown. And I wanted you to talk a, a little bit about sort of how you how you chose to shoot Africatown um, and then bring in sort of all the paper mill stuff around it. Yeah, I mean, um, Africatown is a is a very lush place that's like it, it feels cared for and loved. I mean, there's definitely the blight there. But there's also like a lot of beauty 
And, um, and like when you hear the community talk about, there's a community garden that's the biggest community garden in the state of Alabama. Um, there's, there's like trees that bear fruit, there's flowers, like, and then you zoom up, zoom out, and there's like a chemical industri- industrial complex that surrounds it. And when you first go there, it's very um, emotional, or it was for our, our team. We felt very upset. It smells bad. It's loud. Um, it is clearly polluting. And it, it just seems so unjust to stand there. It's just like it makes you want. We did cry. We, we cried. Um, I remember um, driving down early days when we were just starting in development, driving down the road to Lewis Quarters, which is surrounded by Canfor, and which is historically Gulf Lumber, which the mayor of Mobile, who's featured in the film, his family historically owns that. And just feeling like, how is this possible that this historic community is what? It's so disgusting. Like, why would anyone do that and think that's okay? You know, um, it, it's and, and I was just for four and a half years, I was like, how do you capture this? Um, how do you show what this is? And but then there's also part of me that's hopeful when people in power see this, they'll see it. Maybe they don't see it until you show them. I don't know how, but clearly not. Yeah. The whole time I was making the film, I was very I was always very cognizant of how like how do I translate the experience of how I feel like the smells, the sounds, like the sort of lushness of this place alongside this gray blight. How do I translate that into a movie? Because film, you know, um, I come from like a poetry background, but like film is is this like visceral thing you can almost enter into. And I just felt like the world of Africatown was that visceral. And I wanted to offer that up to the audience to to know what these what what the community was a part of or what what their life was like. You know, there's a lot of wonderful uh craft built into this film to give you know a very lived in sense of of africatown and mobile and and what it's like to live in the south um but the soundtrack is really extraordinary um and the way it's it's doing a, a something that's a lot more complicated than emotional cueing and i'm curious for you to talk about that yeah well um well we work with two and five which is shanji zara zolman um black thought and Questlove, and um so ray angry our, one of our two composers is from the roots and uh ray was super humble in his process and i you know i kind of vaguely play the guitar and um and the piano but he's an incredible musician and he like very humbly kind of let me into his process in the studio like i i, I really felt like and i've worked with composers before but this was just on a different level of him translating what I said into something that really honored the scene that was built. And then Rhiannon Giddens, the other composer, she worked with a man named Dirk Powell and and she would sometimes, she lives in Ireland. And so we would have these Zoom calls at really weird times of day and night. And we would watch the scene together, talk about it. She was fucking super in tune with the, the movie and what she re- she got it on this profound level and um and then she would break out a, a, an instrument from literally like the year that the clotilda came over and play that instrument like live and we would watch her and then she'd like be recording it you know and she would send us it and we would work it in 
I mean, it was just like stunning. She's, I mean, when, you know, I've seen her play before, she's a pretty famous musician and, and her playing is just ch chilling. It sort of, it pulls from the past, but it's also modern. And um, she's able to do this thing um, that's very special. And it was exactly what we needed for the film. You know, um, you know, um, Questlove brought in Ray and I, I didn't know him, but I knew Rhiannon Giddens and she'd also been to Africa town and was already invested in their story. So it was just a dream to get to work with them both. And then the other thing I'll say about it is I have two editors that I worked with, um, Jeff Richmond, who I've worked with for many years and is very musical and always, he always does like the stuff with temp music that you, you know, when you do bring in the composer, you're like, man, this is never as good as the temp that Jeff found. But in this case, my other editor, Mike, who like kind of came in after Jeff had to go to, Jeff does narrative too. And he went to a, a narrative project and then Mike came in and Mike is, he's um, in, in that band, I always forget, The War on Drugs. He's the guitarist for The War on Drugs. Um, he plays on all their records. He doesn't always go on tour with them, but he sometimes does. But he's, you know, written a lot of the guitar parts for them. And so I had this other musician um, who was my editor. So I had this like, I had this insane group of, of musical people. So, I mean, I think it's sort of, I always think that the sound on film, I kind of come from a world, like my dad's a musician and my first film is about Towns Van Zandt. And I definitely come from the world of really knowing that like sound and also the sounds of the South. Like, you know, I worked with Leslie Schatz, who's our sound designer, who's an incredible sound designer and um, has worked on some of my other films. And we were very just cognizant of like the feeling, just making Africa Town feel alive and, um, you know, field recordings with Derek and Ian, the, our two sound, the, you know, field recorders, they, they were always collecting sounds as well. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the history is, is always looping and, and always present and always with us, but you have to end the documentary at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious kind of when you decided that you were done telling this story and kind of how many permutations that went through oh before God. you were able to actually yeah. make, you know, hit export. That's a really complicated question because there's a few things. Like, first of all, when I started this, I thought this is a series way too complicated to make this a feature. No, there's no way. But then as I started going, I mean, I was working with um, Diane Wireman, who I don't know if you know who that is, but from participant who died last year and she was, very close collaborator, a mentor to me, a friend. And she really trusted me to, I mean, she even, you know, I know there were some times I had ideas she deeply disagreed with, but would still like encourage me to go down that road. So like, there's all these threads and there's all this looping happening. And I think when, you know, because there was also like, there's all this stuff that's still happening, like right now, there's the Clotilda is getting excavated and like more closely looked into right now and will be for for a few a few if not many years um um i i can't really say much i i know some about it i can't talk about it but there's some big news coming out so in a way one way one way to look at it would be like the end is somewhat arbitrary because i knew the, the story goes on completely like we're sort of picking our moment to tell the story but I think when I realized it was, it would be like the right time to end was when I saw there was this moment where that it seemed really obvious to me actually, where 
there's a decision to be made. Like, is the city going to support Vita's claim of, of like, when Vita says in the film, she says, I don't wanna be a part of it, I wanna be it. Like she wants to sort of, there's this like tourism initiative. And there's one version of events where the city could really, you know, decide they're gonna trickle down to the descendants. They're gonna sort of claim the waterways claim all the tourist mechanisms and let the descendants populate that and like train them and pay them or there's a way they support the descendants to create their own space and which will happen who will decide well you know and so I decided that I wanted to end the film in this moment which is a, is an ongoing moment when we finish the film in this moment is still ongoing um, a few things have happened since then but that there's no answer to that yet where people watching the film would see the entry point for them to become involved in this it's like a huge story it's like the, i mean in a way it's like the story of you know a microcosm of a story of, of a story of the story of america so no like, i mean that's that is the american question is who gets to do this who gets to build it yeah yeah and so that's seemed to me like the, the exact moment to end the film when it could go either way but um another thing is that like i put a i put a website at the end of the movie because, you know, when before we had the website, people would be every in the what, you know, everyone raises their hand. What can I do? How do I get involved? Now there's a way. And there, I think there's this false dichotomy sometimes in, you know, documentaries that present themselves as art rather than activism that you have to pick one. You're the movie without the without the, you know, the, the, the website at the end, you know, or the like code you scan to go to the website or, you know, you're you're. You're the you're the activist film that that's like a certain kind of like hit you on the head form of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I really think there's a world in which it has to be both. And so I felt like, you know, when Anderson says like when he visits the museum, the lynching memorial in in Montgomery in the film, and um, for a long time that was the end scene in the film when he poses the question of like, is this entertainment? You know, do people go to this and and they're moved? But it's like in a way, it's this sort of form of checking a box yeah. yeah check the box but what do you do when you leave how do you turn that into you know some kind of movement some kind of you know change some kind of activism um and i and i really felt like that's you know hopefully the movie can do both it can like entertain us i don't know if that's the right word but but like some kind of emotional process for people to be a part of but then also join their you know, join their activism, join what the, join what they're doing down in Africatown. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it, the, if, if there's a way through it, it's because we see the subjects of the film sort of grow and change and become leaders over the course of it. Having been there documenting that change, does it change how you think about Mobile? Like, I'm just curious, sort of what what the impact has been on you? Um, I mean, the impact it's been on me is I feel like I like am lucky, very privileged to have been, they allowed me to, they allowed me in. I, I feel like incredibly privileged they trusted me. And I feel, yeah, I feel like I cannot believe that. And they trusted me with their story to like be collaborators on getting the story out. So yeah, that's changed me because it, it invariably shapes how you look at things when you know you trust other people who have experiences that are different in your own. 